But everyone has the power to influence circumstances around them. None of us are powerless. And right now we all need to figure out what role we can play in the preservation of our democracy. Welcome to How We Win, the official podcast of The Persistence. Action is the best antidote for anxiety, and we're giving you the tools to make a difference right now. Today, in the wake of nationwide March for Our Lives rallies, we talk about the upcoming bipartisan gun safety legislation. And we have a special interview from the field with January 6th committee member and former impeachment manager, Representative Adam Schiff. And speaking of the January 6th committee, joining us to talk about the historic hearings we're all watching and what's to come is legal analyst and host of Justice Matters, Lynn Kirshner. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Mariah Craven. And And this this is is How We Win. Win. Oh, man. Oh, these hearings. Boy, they bring it all back home. See, already I want to start talking about it. I want to jump right in and talk about it. We're not really going to because we have Glenn Kirshner on uh, to help us dissect them. But I'll, I'll just say it's bringing so much back. Um, I, I think that they've been so informative and important. And I'll tell you also um, that it's a bipartisan committee, but because the, the, the two Republicans who were brave enough to be on the committee aren't fools it's actually a helpful hearing because you don't have people like jim jordan and lindsey graham flipping out and being histrionic and grandstanding you have them like actually asking the witnesses questions not badgering the witnesses but asking them questions that get to the information that we need and it is so much more helpful than, than some of the other, you know, confirmation and, and Senate hearings that we, we've watched in the past. I have a lot of questions, uh, you know, both uh, legal implications for Trump and his cronies, uh, you know, if it's going to break through. We'll, we'll save all of that for Glenn, though, because uh, he is an expert and he's been doing a great job breaking this all down on his podcast, too, Justice Matters. So, mm-hmm. um, but let's, let's talk about the other you know, really huge news of the week. Last weekend, you know, we had March for Our Lives marches all over the country. They were mm-hmm. huge. Uh, yeah. They exceeded expectations on how many people would show up. Um, the organizers of these events continue to just floor me. I'm, I just cannot be more impressed and grateful for, um, for all of the organizers for these events. We went to our local March uh, here in the city of Burbank, actually, well, just outside of uh, where I live in Valley Village, and uh, bumped into our friend Representative Adam Schiff and and had a really great interview with him that you all will hear later. But uh, he had some really great things to say. And then on the heels of that, I mean, it's not done yet. The law hasn't even been written but we have uh, 10 Republican senators that have committed to a bipartisan gun safety deal. Um, maybe David Hogg was right. Maybe this time really is going to be different. Yeah, what they, um, what this bipartisan Senate group agreed to 
red flag laws, um, background checks, um, preventing domestic violence offenders from getting guns, so-called boyfriend loophole, and clarifying which gun sellers are required to register as federal firearms dealers, which means that private individual gun sellers would have to run background checks on people. So, you know, we talked about this last week, and I think, you know, it's always um, helpful for me to hear from Chris Murphy when I'm like, it's not enough. Right. And and he's like, this is this is good. And this is, you know, the first time in 30 years that we are able to reach an agreement on some of this stuff. And yeah, we talked last week about, you know, incrementalism it feels like the, this is this is literally life and death so i think we should be going much further but it's a start and i think seeing people who have been doing the policy and advocacy work around this um for years they're very hopeful about this and so i take that as a good sign i t- yeah i do too we and we did talk about this last week uh you know i uh, we need much more. I, I, you know, there's just so much common sense stuff that we should be able to get past that we're not able to get past. You know, number one uh, on my list is uh, you know making assault weapons illegal again, banning assault weapons, which we did in the past, and you know, uh, you know has saved countless lives when that was in effect and would again. But um, like you said, uh, I'm going to take my cues from the activists who have been working on this. Also, even before this was passed, I, I was listening to Shannon Watts on uh, – I think it was on MSNBC – talking about the uh, laws that have been uh, passed due to the advocacy and in the wake of these shootings in state houses too, um, strengthening some state gun laws. And um, you know, there there is a, a trend towards – more gun safety laws. Uh, it's hard to ignore when 90% of the country supports these. Um, and uh, But you know they've done a great job of ignoring it in the past. This is going to save lives. I mean, that's the, that's the bottom line. It's not enough. We have uh, way, way more to do, but this is going to save lives. And one thing that I think gets kind of overlooked in this package uh, because, of course, we, we know we need red flag laws. We know we need stronger background checks. But closing the uh, boyfriend loophole for domestic violence offenders, you know, women get killed by their partners at alarming rates and access to guns for those, those people creates a, a, a huge threat to women who are under threat of domestic violence. Yeah, I think I think that's a great point. And my understanding is um, that when the law is written, it would, you know, if somebody is convicted of, of domestic violence, you know, it would prevent them from obtaining a gun, but it would also allow judges to order that guns be removed from their homes if they already have them. I think we are rightly horrified by mass shootings and, and random shootings and, and killings and things like that. But to your point, most murder victims know the person who who kills them. Yeah. Um, so so this is extremely important. And um, I think that we we think that this the legislation should be written by next week. So That's we'll get goal. yeah, we'll get more details if they're if they're on time in a few days. 
Yep. So um, I would say for our listeners, don't get silent. Now's not the time no. to get silent. If you uh, happen to have one of the senators who uh, signed on to this, you need to call them and thank them and tell them that you support this. And um, and if you don't have one of those senators, then call your senators and tell them that they need to vote for this when it comes to the floor of the Senate because uh, it is – Far from being passed yet, and we need to keep the pressure on. So that's one of your to-do list items for this week. Yeah. Um, so funny. My sister was telling me over the weekend that she got a, a call on her cell phone from a strange number, and she picked up, and it was a brand new Moms Demand Action volunteer who said, wow. I'm making phone calls for the first time today. I don't want money from you, I, but I need you to do some things. Here's what I need you to. And she said this woman was so fired up and passionate and enthusiastic that she was like, lady, whatever you need me to do, I'm going to do. <laughs> and she was like, all right, I'm connecting you to your senator's office right now. So um, if you're looking for something to do, you know, you can you can I'll pull up the number to text for mom's demand and like they're doing great work and people yes. are receptive right now. So now is the time moms demand text, text ready to six, four, four, three, three. Text ready to six, four, four, three, three to join the moms demand action team. They are uh, amazing. So there's a, a preemptive to-do list item um, and we have a little bit more for you to do too, but let's talk about this week's Hero of the Week. Steve, you actually got to meet and speak with our Hero of the Week in person this week. Yes, I did. As, as I mentioned, um, I was in Burbank and uh, at, our, at a local March for Our Lives event with my wife and my daughter and ran into our friend, friend of this podcast, uh, Representative Adam Schiff. And um, I don't think I need to tell any of you why he's our hero of the week. He's really always our hero. Uh, he exemplifies what it is to be persistent in the face of um, uh, a lot of Sisyphean tasks. And, um, you know, he was on both impeachment uh, teams. He was the lead impeachment manager for the first one. I still get chills thinking about his right matter speech, but um, I caught up with him while we were uh, marching along uh, Burbank, and, uh, and I'm going to play his interview for everyone right now. I'm here with Representative Adam Schiff, who has been an incredible friend to the show and to the community and to our democracy taking time out here in Burbank to march for the March for Our Lives. Why was it important to come to this particular march? Well, this is my home, and sadly, uh, we are reprising a march we did several years ago after another tragedy, the tragedy in Parkland. And I, I, it's just so discouraging that we have these mass shootings every day, every week. Um, and it doesn't have to be this way. You know, we don't have to have kids going to school afraid instead of eager to learn and play with their friends. Uh, and I'm grateful to people coming out and making their voices heard. And I, I want to be with them and I want to help amplify their voice. Um, I don't know if you remember this, but the first question we asked you when you were on our show before was, um, 
what would have happened if we hadn't taken back the House in 2018. Uh, now we're heading into the midterms right now, and there's so much at the ballot that no hyperbole, this is once again the most important election of our lives. What are the stakes for the midterms right now? Well, they're huge. Uh, you know, to go back to 2018, had we not taken back the House, uh, then in 2020, uh, Kevin McCarthy would have overturned the election. He would have had the votes in the House to overturn the election and uh, and essentially negate the votes of more than half of the country. Um, if he should be in that position again, he would do the same thing. And we just cannot allow that to happen. Our democracy is already fragile. Uh, and we need to protect our democratic institutions. We need to protect the right to vote. Uh, we need to protect local elections officials from harassment and death threats. Uh, and the only way we're going to do that uh, is if we have a Democratic majority in the Congress, because right now the GOP has become little more than a cult of personality around the former president, an anti-truth, anti-democratic cult of personality. And as long as that's the case, uh, they're just going to have to be beaten at the polls. Absolutely. That's our, our task. And, uh, of course, um, Wednesday night, was it Wednesday night? Thursday night now. <laughs> it's all a blur. Um, uh, we, millions of people saw the beginning of the case laid out for the January 6th commission in which you sit. Um, what can we expect from the next six hearings that are coming up? Well, as uh, the vice chair laid out uh, on Thursday night, uh, we will have hearings on the pressure campaign against state and local officials, uh, the role the big lie played and in mobilizing and inciting people to attack the Capitol, the pressure campaign against the vice president, uh, and what the president was doing and importantly not doing while we were under attack. Um, we'll also be discussing in the weeks and months ahead the reforms that are necessary to protect the country going forward. Um, but you'll see a lot of uh, testimony from people that have been heard from before uh, with new insights into the multiple lines of effort to overturn our election and interfere for the first time in our history with the peaceful transfer of power. This is a very somber event, once again, as you stated, marching to protect the lives of our children and our democracies under attack. You're on the front lines of all of it. It must be exhausting for you personally. What gives you hope right now? Uh, we're a deeply resilient country. We've been through other crises in the past. Uh, and we've gotten through them, and this too shall pass. But what we do in this moment will determine how quickly it passes and how much damage we have to suffer along the way. Uh, so everyone needs to be engaged. They can be engaged like we are today in a march. They can be engaged in calling and writing their elected representatives. Um, they can make their voice heard. Everyone has the power to influence circumstances around them. None of us are powerless. And right now we all need to figure out what role we can play in the preservation of our democracy. All right, we have our marching orders. Thank you so much for all you do. Sincerely, we all appreciate it very much. Thank you very much. What a great conversation. And you'll have to uh, post the, the photo of you very seriously <laughs> interviewing him. Serious um, business. <laughs> on, our, on, on the social media at How We Win Pod channels. My media friends would be proud of my uh, my walk and talk interview, how, how <laughs> I pulled that one off. I haven't, not used to doing that. We're just <laughs> organizers here, y'all, right? <laughs>
Oh, but, you're um, you're a jack of all trades. Well, he's he is incredible and gives me hope and um, is uh, an obvious hero of the week. Let's just talk about this week's to-do list. Lots to do. Of course, we have our ongoing fundraiser, which we're gonna we're just gonna keep hammering this home um, through you know until until we raise enough to win the midterms. <laughs> Basically, <Right. laughs> swingleft.org slash fundraise slash how we win. Um, your donations go to Swing Left, which means that they will de be deployed at strategic times to the most advantageous races across the country. How we win is through strategy and smart investments. That is right. Very well put. And we are so close. We tried to last week get to 100 uh, individual donors to this fund, and we are right on the cusp of that. So we can definitely make that happen this week. And um, uh, you all, I just want to thank you if you've already donated. Thank you so much. Um, uh, it's doing well, but we're going to keep raising money for these candidates that really need it the most. Um, and then... Uh, of course, Mariah already talked about texting for moms demand action uh, around this bipartisan gun legislation. So once again, you text READY to 64433 to join in with that action. And lastly, if you are not done marching and uh, we – oh boy, I don't even want to bring this up because it's Supreme Court – decision week yeah. and we're all on pins and needles waiting to find out um, what this conservative court that was stacked by Mitch McConnell um, is going to give to us. But there is uh, – this weekend is Juneteenth weekend. That's right. And uh, in conjunction with Women's March, there is a, uh, a big march in D.C., uh, two days of action for abortion access, black bodies for black power. This is uh, putting you know, black women and, and young people at center stage, but all uh, advocates are welcome to attend and support. Um, so we will put a, a link to that. The, the website is blackbodiesforblackpower.com. Uh, that's June 18th and 19th. Most of it's in D.C., but that you can uh, you can sign up to take action in your community too, and uh, get back out there on the streets. What an important way to celebrate Juneteenth, which is all about emancipation, about freedom, um, freedom to control our bodies, is is just of the utmost importance. So, um, thank you so much for in including that action item. Of course. We will be back in just a second for our interview with Glenn Kirshner and then our reasons for hope. Stick around. Glenn Kirshner is an attorney, a former federal prosecutor, NBC News, MSNBC legal analyst, and the host of Justice Matters because it really, really does. Glenn, thank you so much for joining us and helping us digest what we've seen so far from the January 6th committee hearings. It's been some <laughs> compelling stuff. It's been pretty remarkable. And thanks for having me, Stephen. I appreciate it. And um, yeah, we, uh, 
I'd like to think we're in the home stretch, but I don't know that that's accurate. We have come a long way in the investigation. Uh, DOJ is working hard behind the scenes and to a certain extent in front of the scenes. But Mm -hmm. I think things are about to heat up in all kinds of interesting ways. Well, um, I I was going to ask you what your biggest takeaways are, but I'll, I'll just ask the question, the dumb question that everyone really wants the answer to. Is Trump going to jail? Trump will be indicted. Trump Mm -hmm. will be prosecuted. I predict Trump will be convicted. Hard to say whether he will end up in the Federal Bureau of Prisons somewhere. That's a tough one. Mm -hmm. You know, I had lots of defendants over the years who needed protection because they, for example, had flipped against enormous RICO conspiracies. And um, we had ways to send them to the Bureau of Prisons and make sure we kept them safe. With a former president, you know, it's really hard to say whether our institutions of government will have an appetite to put a former criminal president in prison. I hope to heck we do, because only if, uh, assuming he's convicted and sentenced to prison, you know, only if we apply to the rule of law to our high government officials and certainly our highest government official, can we keep from moving in the direction of becoming a banana republic? Um, And we all know that the Department of Justice has this horrific policy memo by the Office of Legal Counsel that for some reason says, we don't think it's a good idea to prosecute a sitting criminal president. Well, that's no way to run a democracy. Mm-hmm. Um, so I hope that gets revisited and <laughs> revised or revoked altogether by the current administration and the current Department of Justice. But if we don't start holding high government officials accountable for their crimes against the United States, then you know we are on a one-way road to a dictatorship or an autocracy. Yeah. And that policy uh, that you talked about was highlighted in Bill Barr's, you know, audition letter for the job of of AG, the same guy who uh, effectively shut down the Mueller report um, by putting his own synopsis out and, and burying the most damning aspects of it. Yet his testimony over the last couple of days that we've seen has been some of the clearest and most damning and to the point just calling calling out the bullshit where the bullshit was. Um, why do you think Barr uh, chose not to follow Trump off this particular cliff? Because I think Bill Barr knows how much crime and corruption he can get away with. Yeah. And he knows how he could be caught if he went too far. Let's remember in 1993, I think it was, William Sapphire called him not the attorney general, but the cover-up general Mm. for the way he went about covering up the Iran-Contra affair. He was the one who infamously said, let's give everybody pardons because if we're in for a penny, we're in for a pound. You know, that sort of set the tone for who Bill Barr is and how he operates. Then he also said one of the quotes that I hate the most, and that's uh, history uh, is written by the winners. Yeah. And he said, I'll be dead soon. I don't really care how I am recorded in the history books, which I I maintain is only said by somebody who knows he's doing wrong. 
Yeah. Right. If you know you're doing right, you don't make that statement. Um, so his second go round as attorney general was in many ways worse than his first, because now a, a, a corrupt attorney general was partnered with a corrupt lifelong con man and criminal in Donald Trump. And they just wrought all kinds of havoc in the Department of Justice. And I was still a DOJ prosecutor when Donald Trump took office. I served uh, continuously under every president from President Reagan through Donald Trump. And I retired in June of 19, excuse me, June of 2018. I got out while the getting was still good. Um, and, and, you know, Bill Barr weaponized the Department of Justice. He used it to uh, help Trump do his dirty bidding of punishing his perceived enemies like Michael Cohen and Andy McCabe and rewarding his criminal associates like, you know, Manafort and Stone and Mike Flynn. And, you know, one of the most egregious examples is he took a perceived enemy, uh, 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 um, Cohen, Michael Cohen, who was released from the Bureau of Prisons to finish his sentence on home detention. And when Michael Cohen said, I'm going to write a book critical of the president, the Department of Justice, the Bureau of Prisons took him and put him back in prison because he was about to speak out critically of the president of the United States. And a federal court judge in New York granted the great writ, a writ of habeas corpus, and said, the government just tried to imprison Michael Cohen for exercising his First Amendment rights. That's who Bill Barr is. Yeah. Now, Bill Barr's testimony is damning of Donald Trump right now in the J6 public hearings. And some people say the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So we have to rely on Bill Barr's testimony. Well, I say the enemy of my enemy should be charged with his own crimes, run as a cooperating witness, and then be made to testify against Donald Trump, but I'm no longer a federal prosecutor calling any of the shots. Well, that's too bad because I'd love to see that happen too. Um, I, I sort of skipped over though. Like, uh, I, I do want to hear what your main takeaways from what we've seen uh, as we're recording this. We've had two days of public hearings now, um, and uh, I caught up uh, this weekend with uh, Representative Schiff, and uh, he had a uh, a really hopeful uh, outlook. Of course, he didn't get into a lot of details about what we would see from the remaining hearings. But um, what what were your takeaways from what you heard and, and what you expect to see coming up? You know, some of my main takeaways are that we already know what Donald Trump did. That is, we know what his conduct was, his public statements, his uh, speeches at rallies, the tweets that he posted. We know what he did. We are sometimes struggling to try to figure out if he had criminal intent while he was doing it. He did. L let me lay that to rest. And I'm happy to talk about that at length. Yeah. I spent 30 years inside courtrooms proving criminal intent, and I never once had a defendant say, by the way, I have criminal intent. That's not the way it works. Right. You infer intent from statement, circumstances, and conduct. But what I was really excited to see, I still get excited even though I'm an old retired lawyer in my 60s, what I was, what I was really excited to see, uh, I, you just black, blanked in and out of me there on my phone because it alerted me that my battery was low. So I think I'm back. Okay, yes, you are. Um, okay. What I was really excited to see was we learned what happened behind closed doors before Donald Trump made the statements or posted the tweets 
that he did, which provides such compelling evidence of both his corrupt intent and the sort of linear nature of his criminal scheme that culminated in the big lie and then ultimately the insurrection. And let me just hit a few data points because I find this remarkable and I would volunteer to go into a courtroom and prove this to a DC jury. Um, think about when he started talking about um, the election being rigged. It was actually back in April of 2020, the first time he made mention of the election being rigged. And let's never forget that he orchestrated the installation of a corrupt postmaster general, Louis DeJoy, to help slow the mail, to interfere right. with the timeliness of mail-in ballots. So right. this was all part of a, an, a larger criminal scheme. But he started saying the election's going to be rigged. And then I went back and I looked at his language in August of 2020 at the um, Oshkosh, Oshkosh, Wisconsin uh, hate rally that he gave. All of his rallies are hate rallies. Right, yes. And, and he said, I think expressly for the first time, if I lose, the election will have been rigged. That's the only way I can lose. Right. Now, let me fast forward to the day he gave birth to the big lie, which was early in the morning of, you know, the morning after the election. This was now November 4th, when we learned, and I want to talk about what we learned in the J6 hearings in a minute. We learned about what was going on before Donald Trump stepped to the cameras and said, we were winning this election. And in fact, we did win this election. That was the moment the big lie was born. Well, now we see behind the curtain what it is that prompted Donald Trump to make all these statements and take all these positions. Back in April, the poll numbers were already looking bad and he yep. kind of knew he was going to lose. So what did he do? He had to come up with a plan B yep. and his plan B was I'm going to tell them that the only way I could lose is if the election is rigged. That's where it was hatched, or at least that's when it was first announced to the American people. And then in August, he doubled and tripled down and said, the only way I can lose is if the election is rigged. And he said it on a big stage at his Oshkosh rally. Then we saw in the Oval Office, as the return started coming in, we know, courtesy of the testimony of Bill Stepien and others, we know that Donald Trump was well aware of the red, the so-called red mirage, right, right? Right. I am not a political expert and I don't play one on TV, but even I understand that the in-person day of voting, when the returns begin to come in, will favor the Republican, mm -hmm. just as it was favoring Trump. But they knew Donald Trump was going to lose. They knew how bad the poll numbers were. And then sure enough, as the polls were closing, as the mail-in ballots began to be counted and reported out, here comes Joe Biden. We know he's going to win. And he ends up winning in, I think, a popular vote landslide yeah. when all is said yes. and done. So we now know from the J6 hearings that they were talking about this in the Oval Office and they were all telling Trump, Stepien and the other sober adults in the room, there's <laughs> foreshadowing there. They said, look, Mr. Uh, President, you can't declare you're the winner. You're not the winner. The, the mail-in votes still have to come in. The red mirage, you know all about that. All of the sober adults in the room told him, you cannot possibly declare you're the winner because you're not. And frankly, nothing would be more 
disrespectful of the American voters because their votes hadn't been fully counted yet. Right. Well. And then the drunken juvenile in the room, Rudy Giuliani, said, ah, go out and declare victory because if you don't, it's a sign of weakness. And Donald Trump, Donald Trump didn't need Rudy to tell him that. Donald Trump doesn't have any cover because Rudy told him that, drunken Rudy. Oh, he would have done it anyway. He, he was going to do it anyway, yeah. He was going to do it anyway. He stepped to the camera and the big lie was born. Frankly, we did win this election. Now, mind you, Stephen, there, wasn't, there were no reports of fraud at that point. So to claim that any of this was driven by election fraud and suitcases full of ballots and dead people voting is so transparently absurd. Yeah. So if you look at that linear narrative, if you just give prosecutors the opportunity to present this to 12 people in a jury box, Donald Trump will be convicted. Well, um, that's compelling. And it's like you said, what we've all known and seen in plain sight. It's been obvious. We talked about the red mirage in advance of the election uh, as activists and volunteers, like here's what's going to happen. And I remember very clearly uh, knowing about that, knowing that this is a playbook that Trump would you know, almost certainly follow because, as you said, he was already laying the foundation for that. Uh, but God, it was just such a gut punch and so jarring when it really played out that way. And he literally called for this, you know, like we want the votes to stop being counted because we've already won. So these remaining votes shouldn't even be counted. I mean, it was so insane and it's in plain sight. But uh, to the point that everyone wants to know is, will he be held accountable uh, for that? And will his minions be held accountable for that? And um, I was really also happy to see um, Zoe Lofgren lay out exactly how he's been lying and scamming money yes. from millions of his MAGA faithful um, and also talking about the big grift, which has been like behind his whole thing. I mean, from the very beginning, like I'm not even sure he ever thought he would be president to begin with. It was all a grift from the beginning. Yeah. Um, but uh, are on just in in that alone and what he's done, are, are there grounds for fraud charges um, based oh, on, oh, on you that? Know, there's so many criminal charges in play right now for Donald Trump. And I have been saying ever since... Uh, the federal district court judge from the Central District of California, David Carter, made mm -hmm. his ruling, and he's done it twice now. He's re-upped his ruling mm -hmm. that there is um, evidence that satisfies the legal standard of a preponderance of the evidence, more likely than not, 51 percent, that Donald Trump and John Eastman committed two federal felony crimes a th what we call a 371 conspiracy, a conspiracy to defraud or commit offenses against the United States and obstructing an official proceeding, that being the certification of Joe Biden's win. Those are two federal crimes for openers that a judge assessing some evidence in the context of litigation, specifically concerning whether the crime fraud exception applies to John Eastman's emails. It does. And they've been released. Um, those two crimes have been found by a, an evidentiary standard preponderance that is higher 
than the evidentiary standard required to indict somebody. That's only probable cause, well below a preponderance of the evidence. It's amazing how the federal judiciary has been out, out in front of the Department of Justice in so many ways. Take it from old this old career prosecutor. That ain't the way it usually works. <laughs> usually the Department of Justice assesses evidence, investigates, indicts, goes to trial, convicts, and then judges start talking about the crimes that have been proven uh, and now it's sentencing time. We are in upside down bizarro world right now. Yeah. Not only with respect to, and I hope I can get back to Zolofgren giving us that motive evidence of the big uh, ripoff, which is, is just brilliant for so many reasons. But now I'm on a roll in another direction. Please feel free to stop me. Or no, else roll, roll. Continue. That's what podcasts are for just going. <laughs> That's what we do. <laughs> so those two crimes that have been found by uh, Judge David Carter are really only for openers because you also have a seditious conspiracy. And those charges will not stop with the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers. We're going to see Bannon. We're going to see Stone. We're going to see perhaps Flynn also rolled in to superseding indictments, expanding the seditious conspiracy charges, in my opinion, based on what I've seen of the evidence, publicly at least. Okay. Um, you also have inciting an insurrection with Donald Trump's own words. He said, you know, and it's so wonderful that everything he said to his angry supporters as he was ginning them up in his pre-insurrection pep rally on January 6th, everything he said, he said from a platform of fraud. He said, go down there and stop the steal. He knew there was no steal. Every thinking person in the country knew there was no steal. That helps supply additional evidence of his corrupt intent, his criminal mens rea. He told them, your vote has been stolen. Go to the Capitol, fight like hell or you won't have a country anymore. Now stop the certification, though he used the word steal. And they did precisely what he ordered them to do. And they're defending, these insurrectionists are defending on that set of facts and circumstances in court. And let me go on record. I always try to lead with empathy. I feel bad for the, the, the Trump supporters who attacked the Capitol, who are incapable of, and I'm, I'm not being mean, or snarky when I say yeah. this. I know what you who mean. Who are incapable of being critical, independent thinkers because when the President of the United States tells you point blank to your face, your vote has been stolen. And if you're a patriot, if you care about our country, if you care about democracy, go to the Capitol and stop it. Yeah. Not everybody understands that it was a lying career con man who was telling them these things. Because if Joe Biden told me my vote had been stolen and I better get down there and do something about it, yeah. I probably would have taken him seriously. I don't think I would have committed crimes at the Capitol, but I'll be <laughs> damned if I didn't go get my protest on. Well, and, right? my, and my wife definitely has taught me to have empathy too. I mean, uh, earlier uh, on, on this show, we just heard from Adam Schiff and he called the Republican Party, rightfully so, a cult, a cult of personality. And, yeah. and, uh, and it's, it's really what they're cult members. And, um, you know, if you had a loved one or a family member who was in a cult, you would want to help them get out of, out of that cult. And, and, and uh, yeah. you would want to help, help, you know, rid them of that brainwashing. Um, so I appreciate the empathy that you bring to it. It's, it's difficult to find that, you know, right now. 
It is. But they are addicted. They're addicted to Donald Trump's lies, disinformation and propaganda. It's an addiction like anything else. Well, to that to that point, do you think um, this message, these hearings are going to get through to any of them? Certainly the the big grift and, and what Zoe Lofgren laid out um, is affecting them. Do you, do you think they're that's they're going to take that to heart or you know, will this have an impact on the midterms? Let's let's talk about that. Yeah, I'm not a political scientist. How could it not impact the midterms? I am not one of those people who think it's a foregone conclusion that the Republicans are going to take control. I don't believe that to be the case, although I know everybody is rightfully and deeply concerned about inflation and how much a gallon of gas costs and they can't get baby formula. I get all that. And the buck stops with the president on all of that. So I hope the president and his administration are working overtime trying to fix those things to the extent they can impact them. We know it's not all within the president's control. And it's a global issue, too. Yeah. Yeah. And I do think the public uh, can't help but be impacted by the J6 uh, revelations in these public hearings if they're paying attention. Um, I don't know whether it will move the needle in the in Trump supporter land writ large. Um, it, it might, but that's almost beside the point. Yeah. Because, you know, people say, well, it's going to insp- inspire violence and maybe civil war if we indict Donald Trump, to, to which I respond. So we should decline to prosecute a criminal former president who tried to overthrow our democracy because his supporters might resort to violence. That doesn't seem to be a winning formula for a viable democracy. That's right. Um, So I don't really think moving the needle in MAGA world, I don't even like the term MAGA, and I never use the term maggot in all of those derogatory terms. Mm -hmm. I I don't think that matters. Maybe it will, maybe it won't, but to me it doesn't matter. Merrick Carlin needs to pick up the ball and run with it. He's been running with the ball. My friends and former colleagues at both the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office, my professional home for decades, mm-hmm. um, and my friends at the Department of Justice have been working night and day on the in- insurrection case writ large. And, uh, you know, the one thing that is really a curiosity and I think has filled us with anxiety over the past 17, 18 months is it looks like Congress is going first with a criminal investigation And that's not ordinarily what happens. Usually the Department of Justice goes first in a criminal investigation and Congress takes a back seat because its responsibilities are more about investigating and crafting legislation to prevent this from happening again. So I did a piece for MSNBC Daily that posted a few days ago, maybe a week ago, asking the question, is there a method to what seems like investigative madness? And there is. And, you know, my perspective from inside the Department of Justice for decades informs the way I see this. Um, If you let DOJ go first, and it's a little bit of a false construct, DOJ hasn't gone second. DOJ has been in the grand jury in ways that we don't know about and we shouldn't know about. But that's kind of what brings us right to the thrust of the argument. Grand jury proceedings are secret by law. And in fact, we will never reveal what was said in the grand jury by witnesses unless and until somebody's indicted, 
tried, and those witnesses are called to the, to the witness stand in a public proceeding, then we are obliged by law to turn over that grand jury transcript to the defense attorney representing the defendant so he or she can use it to cross-examine the witness. So if these thousand witnesses that have testified to the J6 committee went into the federal grand jury first, all of that information would be by law hidden from the American people permanently, Hmm. or at least for years. And we would be sitting here with no information while Congress, while a congressional committee waited to go second. That and I would just be binging. I would just be binging on Netflix and uh, and not getting to enjoy this must see TV that's being presented to us instead. So. Exactly. <laughs> but because the J six committee went first, and the congressional committees don't labor under grand jury secrecy rules, so they can now present to the American people and to the world what they learned from these thousand plus witnesses to help galvanize public opinion. And then DOJ can start dropping indictments on these people. That's one of about four reasons that this seeming investigative madness actually makes a lot of sense. It does make a lot of sense. Um, There's a theory that the January 6th committee should not refer charges and should just let the Justice Department do it on its own to avoid the appearance of political influence. Do you agree with that? I don't care one way or the other because just as <laughs> we just I need say, the damn charges. <laughs> just just as I say, I don't know if this will move the needle for Donald Trump supporters. I don't care because you have to do what's right. You know, listen. I can argue both sides of the congressional referral coin. Some people will say it'll make it look like the Department of Justice is kowtowing to a you know a dem- Democrat. Um, a a democratically controlled Congress or controlled by Democrats. Some people will say, yeah, but that's their job. If they find evidence of crime, they need to make criminal referrals. We can argue that back and forth all day long. What I know is that a criminal referral will not impact what the Department of Justice decides to do with respect to indicting somebody or not indicting somebody. I remain a Merrick Garland supporter. Now, have things taken too long? Yes. Do I agree with all of his decisions? Absolutely not. But based on everything I know about the man, when I look at how he handled the Oklahoma City bombing case Hmm. and the Unabomber case and the Atlanta Olympics bombing case, and importantly, in my old office, the Mayor Marion Barry prosecution, which was difficult factually and Hmm. legally and politically and atmospherically. And even more important, I have to go back to before that. I'm an old homicide guy. He was a homicide prosecutor. He predated me, but he worked with the homicide detectives from the Metropolitan Police Department that I ended up not only working with, but being mentored by, learning from. And their opinion of him is he is the exact kind of quiet storm that you want in an attorney general under these circumstances. And I trust I trust those men and women, the homicide detectives, to to, to watch my grandchild. Okay, that's how much I trust them. <laughs> and I trust their opinion. We're going to get to the right place. I just hope we get there in time to save our republic. I love that characterization of him. I'm going to, from now on, call him Merrick Quiet Storm Garland. I like it. You should put out a record called Quiet Storm. Um, 
And I remember the Mary and Barry thing very well because I grew up in D.C. But uh, one last question before we go, the same question that we ask all of our guests. And you have laid out a lot of hope for us um, in in what you've seen so far. Uh, What gives you the most hope for the future right now? So I teach criminal justice undergrad at George Washington University. I used to teach law school for four years at GW, and I decided I no longer wanted to be part of the machinery that creates more lawyers. Because take it from this lawyer, lawyers are the worst. I'm married to one. I am one. My friends are lawyers, but we're the worst. My dad was a lawyer Um, as well, so... Well, no offense, but my, my pop was a high school football coach and he thought he raised me better than to become a lawyer. Um, so uh, what, 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 you know, when you say that word, I could certainly talk about how I am optimistic and not, I hope, in a Pollyanna or naive way based on the evidence I'm seeing, mm-hmm. you know, from the J6 committee. But I, I teach semester after semester. It's a basic criminal justice class and, and it's called From Arrest Through Appeal. And I have a class of about 50 plus students each semester, and I am so optimistic every time I meet with them when they articulate their concerns and their goals and their mission for the future to attack a broken criminal justice system, Mm. a struggling democracy, and make it better. And they come up with ways to make it better that I don't, I can't even conceive of. And I, and I come away from literally every class being so optimistic for the future because of those young people. That's, so that's what I hang on to. I love that. Glenn, thank you so much. I encourage everyone uh, who hasn't, I'm sure we have tons of crossover on our listeners, but check out Justice Matters. And you've been doing really great breakdowns of of each day of these investigations, uh, of these hearings rather, that have been very helpful to me. And and I encourage everyone to listen to those. And uh, thank you for all you do and for being here on How We Win. My pleasure. Enjoy being with you. So grateful for Glenn and uh, and his deep knowledge and legal perspective. And uh, boy, I can't wait to watch watch more of these hearings unfold. But in the meantime, uh, Mariah, what's your reason for hope? Um, my reason for hope is um, there is I I feel like I'm seeing a push on social media to really um, hammer home, especially ahead of the midterms what the president and vice president are doing for the country. I think that we sometimes get caught up in complaining, this is not enough, that is not enough. And I always want us to ask for more, but we need to acknowledge the 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 um, wins that are taking place. So there's this Twitter account called Biden Wins that has just blown up in the last... Um, in the last few weeks, they've just like, I think doubled or maybe even tripled their number of followers. But all they do is tweet out the positives. And listen, you're not only supposed to look at the positives of any elected official. There's always room to ask for more and to improve. But ahead of the midterms, we really got to hammer home for our friends and family what this administration is doing uh, for us. So for example, you know, pointing out that Trump ran up the deficit and President Biden is on track 
to cut the federal deficit by $1.7 trillion by the end of the year. Um, so check out this Twitter account, go to it. When somebody says Biden's not doing anything and gas prices are high and inflation and blah, 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 blah. This it gives you historical context as well as the, the improvements that Biden is making for this country. And that's going to be so important to be able to articulate. Um, so take a look, educate yourself, amplify. Love it. Yeah. What is your reason for hope this week, Steve? Um, well, we talked about it already. I'm going to talk about it again. It's this uh, gun legislation. I've been so utterly demoralized by the lack of action in the wake of these horrific slaughters of our citizens, of our children. Um, we just recognize the anniversary of the shooting in Las Vegas, too. And in the wake of that... And the Pulse uh, nightclub shooting. And the Pulse nightclub shooting, exactly. And, uh, and I remember we almost got rid of bump stocks that right. turn, you know, these semi-automatic weapons into automatic weapons. And we couldn't even do that. Right. Like, you know, um, I've just been so demoralized by the lack of action on all this. And uh, this is hopeful. It's not enough, but it's going to save lives and it gives me hope. And when I see, as you mentioned, the March for Our Lives activists, the kids who have been so dedicated to this, celebrating these wins, I want to lift them up and celebrate with them. I want to take this opportunity to really feel hopeful about our future. So that's what gives me hope. Beautifully said, and um, I, I think it's been a, a long time since any of us have had hope around this issue, and just grateful to to have a little a little glimmer sparkling our way. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. This is how we win. We win when we all get involved. We would love to hear from you. Uh, who was your hero of the week? Uh, send us an email at hello at howwewinpod.com or tweet to us at bluesboysteve and at mariah underscore craven. Make sure that you subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple or wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. Share us with your friends and help us build this community of informed and active volunteers. This right. is how we win. It is how we win. And, uh, and we also really appreciate you being here with us. We will, of course, be back with more next Wednesday because we are the official podcast of The Persistence. <laughs> See you then. MSW.